The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hour, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel. Uh, she even had her own 90-minute PBS television special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. So to learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. So who's your guest tonight? Oh, look, right here next to us. We are so excited that we have a wonderful professor right here from the University of California, Irvine. And it's always such a pleasure when they come in the studio and she's got little earphones on and she looks great. We are speaking with Alice Silverberg tonight. I'm going to tell you something about her and then we will talk with her. She is a professor of mathematics and computer science at the University of California, Irvine. And she is a cryptography area leader at UCI's Secure Computing and Network Center. Her research areas are cryptography and number theory. She earned her undergraduate degree summa cum laude from Harvard University and her master's degree and PhD from Princeton University. She earned a certificate of advanced study from the University of Cambridge and she was awarded Humboldt, Bunting, Sloan, IBM, and National Science Foundation fellowships and a research fellow- professorship from the Mathematical Science Research Institute. She has done consulting or research at a number of institutions, very exciting all around the world, and she's consulted for TV show num- the TV show Numbers and the documentary Julia Robertson and Hilbert's Tenth Problem. She was an organizer of the Fermat Fest at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco, and she writes mathematically inspired Scottish country dances. I have to ask her about that. I forgot to tell her I'm going to ask her about that. And you can learn more about her at math.uci.edu slash dash a Silverberg. And at the same time, you can see a lot of her writings. Very exciting. Thank you for coming to the studio tonight. Well, thank you very much for inviting me here. I'm pleased to be here. Well, you know, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you, but I have to ask you about these mathematically inspired country dances. Tell us about that first. Well, so Scottish country dancing is something I've been doing ever since I was in grad school. Um, it's something that a lot of mathematicians and physicists seem to like to do because it has a lot of patterns in it, and very ordered, and there are a lot of things to be thinking about at the same time, what you do with your feet and what you do with other people and what you do with your hands. And um, So the patterns lend oneself to, well, so people can write Scottish country dances. There are some traditional 
folk dance dances, and then there are ones that people, there are modern dances that people are writing, and I decided to just, you know, write dances for various reasons inspired by various things. The first one, um, a colleague and I, to honor the proving of Fermat's last theorem, a 350-year-old mathematics problem, um, we were in Germany at the time, and we we wrote a dance. It was called, I guess it was called Das Fermatische Fahrrad, which is uh, Fermat's bicycle in English, which actually became popular. People were dancing it, and you know, every so often I see, you know, in Texas there was a dance that danced this. And so um, what we try to do is have some pattern, mathematical pattern in some way involved. So there's um, another dance, um, the Nothurian Ring, which is both a mathematical object and, you know, you can you know, imagine it as, as anything you like. But we, uh, I guess for that one I wrote a dance uh, with that name. And then there was a mathematician who was ha- celebrating her 60th birthday. And so we were all asked to do something creative in her honor. And uh, she does something called Zeta Functions. So I wrote a dance <laughs> called Audrey's, and her name was Audrey Terrace, Audrey's Zeta Zoo. Um, so there are all sorts of uh, patterns that are supposed to be reminiscent of the sort of mathematics that she did. People can go to my webpage and see the mathematically oh. inspired Scottish country dance. And there was another and, and one. you can see the video there too? Can you see a video uh, of no, the dance? No, you can just see a description of the dance. So if you oh. are used to reading Scottish country dances, you know what it means. And otherwise, well, you'll have to go and do Scottish country dancing and learn what it's all about. And <laughs> then you'll be able to I see bet what there it must means. be something on YouTube. Um, there, there are diagrams. Yeah, so so my page has has diagrams, but uh, and and written descriptions. Yeah. yeah, so it sort of explains what it was. So for the 60th birthday party, I had to you know sort of give some explanation for people, for, so they would know how to dance this, even though they haven't done Scottish country dances before. That is so fun. So. I would love to see it in a video. I bet there is something on YouTube up there. Oh, there will be Scottish dancing videos, but not probably not for any of my dances. There's one I did that's not mathematically inspired. It was called the Cayley Dance, which was in honor of my cat. And in fact, I think we'll be talking later about the Cayley Crypto System. It's the same Cayley, the same cat that they were uh, I have an idea after. for you. You can have your class do the dance and take a video and put it up on, on your website. <laughs> it would be so fun. That you know, that would be a good way for them to practice their math, right? Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, having a YouTube of the yeah, dance. Uh, yeah, it would yeah. be great. Then you got to tell us and we'll, I'll watch it. Mm-hmm. The other thing I wanted to ask you about that I didn't tell you I was going to ask you is also about this. Tell me about the consulting for these TV shows. That sounds fun, too. What did you do for the Julia Robertson and Hillett's 10th problem? What was that? Yeah, so that was actually, that is a documentary. So that has not appeared on television yet. And I don't know oh. if it will, but at the moment it's a docu- documentary. It's a DVD. Um, George Chichery was the, the filmmaker who did that. And it's um, about Julia Robinson and her quest to solve a, an unsolved mathematics problem. And yeah. uh, so it's about her life and what led her to, to want to solve this problem. And the, it was really an international collaboration during the Cold War with, there was a mathematician in Russia who actually ended up doing the, the, final, the solution to this problem, but there were mathematicians in the US who were contributing to it, and there was you know, writing back and forth through the Iron hmm. Curtain. So it's a very interesting story of a very interesting mathematician and really her quest to really find out the answer to this problem and to you know contribute to it without you know without her goal being that she had to be the one to solve it she really just yeah, wanted to know it's really wanting to know the answer to a problem to a question so how, what did you do for your consulting on that? Did you? Um, well, one thing that I did that I was proud of was um, one thing I, I, I really liked the fact that this was a documentary about a female mathematician. Yeah, and, there aren't too many and there of there aren't those. too yeah. many documentaries about women mathematicians. Yeah. Um, so one thing I was happy to do was to introduce the, 
filmmaker to to a woman um, who was actually Julia Robinson was at uh, Berkeley, and this woman I knew had been a Berkeley grad student and was working on extensions and generalizations of Hilbert's tenth problem, which was what Julia Robinson had been working on, and getting her as one of one of the people who was interviewed. I thought that was a useful thing to have a you know real live female mathematician who um, who was actually working on current mathematics as related to this problem, and there were also Mostly, I would say, just making sure that that there was an understanding of what it was to be a female mathematician in the 20th century, which right. is, you know, d a different thing from being a male mathematician. And, and even here, even nowadays, right? And even exactly, yeah. I mean, so she, yeah, so she is, you know, really almost a contemporary mathematician. She, yeah. she lived till fairly recently. So yeah, mm. so basically, it's it's saying how things really are today for women in mathematics. And I just wanted to make sure that that. Side was so how, are, how is it for women? Is it, is it still hard? <laughs> it is still surprisingly hard. Things have certainly gotten better in the time that I've been a mathematician. But, you know, things, things are still, you know, things are generally moving in the right direction. But it's still, it's still, there's still barriers just because people are women that, right. that aren't mostly <clears throat> unconscious. You know, mostly people are, you know, good people trying to do the right <coughs> thing, but it doesn't always happen. And things aren't always equal. Things aren't always right. the way they should be. Um, right. So we're, you know, people are still working on that. I think you still, unfortunately, need to keep working in that direction. It doesn't go, well, hasn't gone away yet. The problems. I think when we have brilliant women like you, it sure helps to to help the <laughs> others come well, follow you. up. What well, What about the TV show Numbers? That was spelled N U M B three R S. Right. I didn't see that. What is it? Yeah, it's it's on on CBS on Friday nights. Be nine o'clock. So it's a popular show. It's uh, so I guess the premise is there's an FBI agent who's trying to solve crimes, and he uses his brother, who's a mathematician, to help him. Who, who uses mathematics then to help solve the crimes. And the way I got involved in consulting for that was um, I went to the the large annual meeting of the American of all the mathematical societies, um, and somebody gave a presentation about the show numbers. One of the um, people who works for it, and um, I went up afterwards and I asked the well. So one thing I asked was how many. Um, well, someone before me had had made had expressed concern about the depiction of female mathematicians. So it was again this, ah. the same route, um, and I seconded her concerns and I asked, "Have you ever had a female?" mathematician consulting for this show and he thought about it and decided no he never had so afterwards I went up to him gave him my card and said I'd be willing to do this also um, because I wanted to make sure I, they, uh, cryptography is something that comes up often and I thought they could do the cryptography better so I thought it would be useful for them to have a cryptographer and a number theorist number theory also comes up um, to have a someone to help them with that. Um, so it was really an interesting experience for me. I can't say that I really had a lot of influence on the show. Mostly they ignore, you know, you send them comments on the script and they ignore three quarters of them and then the other quarter, well, you know, they may change the script a bit, but then the you know, the actors will ad-lib something different. And so, you know, it's still, I find it very amusing to watch the show and to see, you know, what they changed on my advice and what they didn't change and what they changed and didn't do exactly what maybe they should have done. Um, yeah. So it was, it was a very interesting experience for me. Yeah, that uh, sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, well, well, I, I got to go to the studio <laughs> there and got to see, you know, um, an episode filmed in which they had in the background um, equations from this crypto system that a colleague and I had done, the Cayley crypto system. Oh. So we got on the on the blackboard the word Cayley and the equations for the system, and um, apparently that was seen by more than 12 million viewers that oh. night. So you know, math papers don't get read by very many people, but all you have to do is you know. Now, did put, they give you credits at the end of the show? No, I don't. I don't get credits, but they did. You know, they oh. they did. You know, make it known that I was a consultant. So. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about what 
is cryptology? Mm. Okay, so cryptology <coughs> consists of really two different sides to the same coin. One of them is cryptography, which is sending secret messages. Mm -hmm. um, and the other side is to sort of uh, reverse that, which is, well, cryptanalysis, which is code breaking, which is the people who are trying to not let you keep your messages secret. And so there's really the two parts, the cryptography, and that's called cryptanalysis, is the code breaking. So cryptography and cryptanalysis together will form cryptology. And how did you get to be such an expert in cryptology? Well, so <laughs> when I first became a mathematician, I was a number theorist, um, and it wasn't, so in the mid-1980s, it was found that number, so number theory had supposedly been an area that was considered to be very pure mathematics that would never have any applications. And the, there's a mathematician, G.H. Hardy from uh, England, who um, said that was one of the things he liked about number theory was that it would never, ever have any applications. And he was proved wrong very quickly. So in the mid-1980s, uh, sorry, the mid-1970s, it was discovered that number theory has um, very important applications to cryptography, um, namely public key cryptography, where you really, you know, the, I, what I, I'm fond of saying is that number theory is the backbone of public key cryptography. So when that, um, and but then by then it was actually the mid-1980s when it was discovered that elliptic curves, a particular branch of number theory, um, has applications to, to public key cryptography. And I had already been studying elliptic curves and their um, abelian varieties, which are their higher dimensional generalizations, and to discover that these things had use in the practical world was you know, really exciting for me. So I started paying attention to it starting in the mid-1980s when, when this was uh, announced. Um, so it was uh, Victor Miller and Neil Koblitz were two people who independently came up with elliptic curve cryptography. Um, and then I didn't really start actively working in it until maybe 10 years ago when I started uh, you know, working on it. Um, and, and there I... I um, Yes, the first paper, I, there was a cryptographer who, um, Jessica Stadden, who was really very helpful at getting me into cryptography. And she and I and another mathematician, Judy Walker, wrote a paper together. And that really got me into doing research in cryptography. And I've been doing it, both cryptography and number theory, ever since. You know, and that's such an important thing nowadays with security. I mean, we, even our security breach notification law in California, if you encrypt the sensitive information, even if you have a breach, then you don't have to notify people. You don't have to get embarrassed. So everybody's hearing about encryption. All companies are starting to learn, oh, my God, we better encrypt. And we don't even understand what encryption is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I wanted to ask you, what exactly is public key cryptography? Well, good question. So for, so cryptography is thousands of years old. And for the first you know, however many thousand, you know, 3,000, 4,000 years, <clears throat> um, the type of cryptography is what we now call private key cryptography or symmetric key cryptography. And there what you had was you have, so, so suppose I want to send you an encrypted message. The way it worked with private key cryptography is that you and I would somehow have to exchange some sort of secret. Like maybe we'd have to exchange code books where each day we'd have a different code. So for example, if, you know, during World War II and the, there were um, you know, code books that had to be sent out to the battlefield and you, um, and then I would encrypt a message using the code of the day and you would get the message and you'd have the same code book, you'd know what the day's code was and you would decrypt the message using that same, right. that's why it was symmetric key because we had the same key right. and I use the key to encrypt and you use it to decrypt. Right. And um, so an example would, you know, well, so that's, so that's the way it was done for many, many years. And then in, in the mid-19s, well, so that people wondered, is it possible 
to get around this problem. So you have problems where you have these these code books and they can get right. stolen. Yeah. And that's actually ha you know what happened in terms of uh, you know cryptanalysis is is partly you know being clever and using mathematics and is partly you know sinking the ship and stealing the the code books. Right. right. Um, so that so but that's an issue. Is and so there's a question: Is there any way to do this? You know, you don't want to have to run around the battlefield giving out the codes. So is there any way to do this where t where you and I, even if we're far apart? Can um, can send encrypted messages to each other without, without, having, without having met in advance. Yeah. So, for example, if you want to send your credit card number over there, you want to buy a book so from from Amazon, Amazon for example, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, and you want to send your credit card number over the internet. You don't want to have to go to have gone to Amazon's headquarters in advance to find out the secret code that you have to use to communicate with Amazon. Right. So there has to be some way to do this. And for many years, people thought this was impossible. How could you possibly do this? How are you going to be able to communicate secretly with someone far away if you haven't exchanged some secret in advance? Um, it turned out, so with Diffie and Marty Hellman in the mid-1970s, and it turns out it was actually done earlier in the secret government agencies right, uh, who knew right. about this earlier, but they didn't, they, we didn't find out right. about that till later. But um, Diffie and Hellman found out that you can use mathematics to accomplish this. And so this is public key cryptography, which is also known as asymmetric key cryptography. And the way that works is, so I want to send a message to you. I need to know, so you're going to have two keys. You're going to have a public key and a private key. And I need to know your public key, but it's public. Um, and I encrypt the message using your public key. And because you have, you're the only one who has the private key associated with that particular public key, you're the only one who can decrypt the message. You use your private key to decrypt the message. So that's public key cryptography. So we're all, all doing it publicly. I can encrypt the message. Um, you know, and send it to you, and I don't have to worry about it being intercepted. And you because use only your private key to encrypt it, right? Um, I use your public key <coughs> to encrypt oh, okay, it. okay, okay. And you use your private key. key. And so these keys are paired so that you're the only one who has the private key that can encrypt messages that were, mm -hmm. that, sorry, that can decrypt messages that were encrypted with your public key. So you will have a pair of keys. Um, so you, you use a different key for encrypting than is used for decrypting. Right, right. So, and so, that, so and that's public key. That's basically what public key cryptography is. Um, and yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so the, so, the, um, so the reason that mathematics is used for this is um, public key cryptography is based very much on the idea of a one-way function. So if you think of, um, one way to think of you having a public key and a private key is to think that you have a lock. Um, and anyone can come along and lock your lock but only you have the key that unlocks it. So you should think of that, the lock is your public key, and the key that opens that lock, that's your private key. So you have to hold on to that private key and let no one else have it, but it's fine for anyone to come along and give, it, you know, give a message, lock it with that, you know, in other words, encrypt it with that, um, with your public key. And that's, um, it's one-way functions that allow you to do that, and that, for that you need something like number theory. Um, you need some sort of mathematics. Is there is there a, some kind of an easy way to explain how that works? Ah, thank you for asking that question. Good question. So here's here's what I use when I'm trying to explain this. Do I have to take this. your class to understand yeah. it? Well, so if you really want to do it, then you do have to take my class. You have to go and, and you know learn learn a lot of mathematics. So if you want to, you know, in, in practice we do this with mathematics. But if you want to, ex you know, if I want to explain to someone. How do you, what's, what's the spirit behind this? What's the principle? So here, suppose we have, so consider the following scenario. Suppose you and I are very, very far apart on opposite sides of the world. 
and I, I need to send you something valuable. There's a diamond that I need to send to you. And I have a box, and I have a collection of locks and keys that only work on those locks. And you have a collection of locks and keys that work on your locks. And I know that if I send you something in an unlocked box, you know, the only way to send it to you safely is if I send it to you in a locked box. Otherwise, it'll get stolen in transit. And there's the question, how can, you know, is this possible? Can I send this to you? If we haven't exchanged a key in advance, how are you? So, so that's yeah. the problem. So what I do is, you know, I present this to someone as a problem. And I ask them, you know, is this possible? Is it not possible? How would you do this? And, you know, the interesting is to try to get someone to think through this. Yeah. Um, don't ask me. Don't ask you. No, no, really. So let's, you know, so, so what people normally do is they start thinking, they say, well, I don't know, let's see. I put, so what would you do? You'd put, I'd put the diamond in the box, right. lock it, and then I send it to you, right? So what are you going to do? Well, you put it in and you, you use a I, combination. I, no, right? well, no, so, yeah, but how much, I, I couldn't, can't send you the combination, so you're not going to be able to unlock it. Suppose I have just, you know, locks and keys, so right. not, not a combination, but, but in any case, even if it were a combination lock, you know, I, right. I have no way of sending you the combination except by putting it in a locked box. And can you open that box? Well, you don't have the key. So, but, but you can do something. What can you do? <laughs> I don't know. She's putting me on the spot. I am. Lloyd. I am. I am. <laughs> Lloyd, what about you? You have an idea? So, but you don't, see, I'm not giving you that many options what to do. But what you have is you have locks <laughs> and you have keys that work on your lock. So let's try the following. Suppose, <laughs> so I send the... So the diamond is in the box. I, right. I lock it. I send it to you. You get this thing. You look and you say, well, what am I supposed to do with this? I can't open this. I don't yeah. have the key. Yeah. So you say, okay, I have a lock. Get a saw. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do it. Um, so you, you put on your lock and you lock it and you send it to me. Well, so now it's double lock. Well, what good is that? That makes right. things even worse. So well, I get this thing back either. and I can't <laughs> even open your, yeah, I can't open it because you've locked it with your lock. So what can I do? There's not much I can do. But what I can do is I can unlock my lock and take my lock off, and the box oh. is still locked, right. and I send it back to you. You have the key to your lock, you can open it. Right. And that's the principle of public key cryptography, uh -huh. the idea that I would have my private key, you have your private key. Mm. In fact, this is the basis really, um, this is the way to think of what's known as Diffie-Hellman key agreement, where I said that Whit Diffie and Marty Hellman, this is basically what they did. They came up with a mathematical way to accomplish this thing with the boxes and the locks, mm. where I use my private key and something public that you've sent me to, cons to create a secret, and you can, con you can construct that exact same secret using your private key and something that I sent publicly to you. Um, but what they were able to do is to come up with, with mathematics that allows you to do that in a way that a computer can do it, so that two people far apart. So this is basically the sort of thing when you're um, sending, you know, you're trying to buy something from Amazon, you have to somehow, you want to send your credit card. Before that happens, your computer and Amazon's computer have to negotiate a shared secret. They have right. to do something like the Stiffy-Hellman key agreement where we have to construct a shared, you know, they, I and they have to construct a shared secret, my computer and their computer construct a shared secret that can then be used to do private key cryptography so that we can uh, then encrypt and decrypt messages. So, right, so when we put in our credit card, that, that puts in our It's going to be encrypted, but only because the computers have already negotiated a way for us to communicate securely, and they've right. negotiated in a way very analogous to this thing where, you know, I sent you the diamond, the same sort right. of thing. So for that, and for that, we don't have to understand it. The people it. using it don't have to understand it, but you have to hope that they're using some reliable 
crypto system with some reliable mathematics and that the people implementing it have done it right. right. So that's why we need mathematically educated people around so that we know that <laughs> the people implementing these things understand enough of the <clears throat> mathematics behind it that when they when they set up these systems, they're reliable so that you and I can rely on them. So we, we need a good mathematically educated public um, so that we can trust these systems. We can trust that the people setting them up knew what they were doing. They knew as much as they needed of the mathematics to, to get this working The scary part right. is when the hackers figure it out, too, and how to go beyond that and, and decrypt it. There was just that big, uh, what is it, 4.2 million people whose information was stolen with, what's the name of that, uh, Lloyd, that, that supermarket store? Uh, I forgot the name of it, on the East Coast. And what they said was, is that there was the in, the encryption was uh, somehow um, malware got in and was able to decrypt when it was transferred from the customer. Uh, the customer's information was transferred. So that's the scary part. I mean, you have all these brilliant people like you who understand all this math. The scary part is when these hackers understand it too. Ex exactly. And so that's why you want to, you have to hope or you have to make sure that the hackers don't know more mathematics than the than the good guys. So you want to make sure that the good guys are, are paying the, the number theorists and the mathematicians enough that's that, right. that it, it pays for them to be good guys rather than to be hackers. Yeah, so they don't um, go to the dark side. Exactly. So you want, yeah, so the hackers also, you know, they, they figured out that it's their benefit benefit to know a lot of mathematics because so a lot better, of a we lot have to of tell UCI that they have to give yeah. you a raise. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but but it's, it's scary. But I mean, the hacking think of the can people who yeah. you might be training, you know, in your classes. Mm, they mm. could go to the dark side. I, I don't know if you know who this Kevin is, Mitnick is, but mm, he's brilliant right. and he was on our show and I've read his books. And, you know, he, he knows this kind of stuff. He is brilliant. and, and Yeah, this is like a good point. We should probably be teaching uh, people to ethics, be ethical, ethical mathematicians. Side. This yeah. is actually, this is a very good point. You it's know, a great well, you suggestion. could do that in your next class. That'll mm. be one of the segments. <laughs> yeah, because the hackers are learning that, yeah, the more mathematics you know, the more you can do. And uh, yeah, 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 both, the, both the sides can use mathematics. Yeah. Everybody can use mathematics. And then somebody like me who doesn't even know, I think I can trust what I'm doing. I think if I go to Amazon and I think that if I see that little lock there or I see HTTPS that it's going to be encrypted and it's going to be safe. But I have to rely on it, like you said. And then there's the bad guys out there who can figure it out. You know, right. these hacker websites have all this kind of stuff that they're talking about encryption and, and all this technology. I mean, I was just looking at it the other day and asking some uh, security people some technology stuff. And it was all math. Mm -hmm. It was all mm -hmm. math. You know, so right. um, so a certain amount of cleverness, certain amount of luck, a certain amount of mathematics for right. both the creating of good crypto systems and for the hacking. Right. right. Well, you know, I wondered again. You know, we were talking a few minutes about companies, and many companies need to protect their privacy and their customer privacy, and you know, even their trade secrets. So, what should they know about crypto uh, cryptography before they use it? What should they be thinking about? Well, so there are some basic rules that cryptographers have come up with that are, are probably um, the sort of thing to keep in mind if you're a company and you're trying to decide what to do. Um, and, and these, I don't know who to credit these uh, phrases with. Um, I don't know who came up with these these clever phrases, but one is never roll your own cryptography. <laughs> and, 
Um, and the other is don't rely on, on security through obscurity. And what these things mean are, so it seems to be very common for companies to decide, oh, you know, we know a little bit of mathematics. We're going to create our own crypto system. And then no one's going to know what it is, so, you know, it's going to be safe. And that's about the worst thing you can do. What you should do is you should get... First of all, you should be relying on well-known published algorithms, things that have been thoroughly vetted by the experts, that have been out there for a while, so that the, the experts are the ones you know, who, can, who can tell you if it's right and who are the ones that are trying to break the systems. If the system has survived for a while with the experts scrutinizing it, it's probably safe. Well, you don't have the incentive to figure out the flaws in your own crypto system. Your incentive is for it to work. It's the, the enemy, it's the competitor, it's the bad guy, it's the attacker who has the incentive to break your crypto system. So basically, companies should be getting reliable crypto systems. They should be buying a standard crypto system off the shelf using a well-known published algorithm. The chances of getting it right on your own are very small, and keeping it secret doesn't really help. In fact, a, a good um, case is, you know, so the U.S. government used to do that and have security through partly through obscurity where they didn't tell what systems they were using. And it's very interesting, a few years ago, the government announced that they were switching their public key cryptography from whatever their previous secret system was to elliptic curve cryptography. And they decided that that was that, that it was, first of all, it was important to announce what it is that you do, that you're using elliptic curve cryptography, so that people can feel, ah, we know they're using something reliable. Um, so that was a very interesting thing to see, that they actually even decided we're not going to use security through obscurity anymore. Um, and I was also very glad to see it because elliptic curves are something that I work on, and it was really <laughs> thrilling to see that, you know, the public announcement that this is, so the U.S. government now uses elliptic curve cryptography um, for its public key cryptography. Let me ask you something. You know, you hear about 125 and 256, and what are the different levels? What does that all mean when, when we say, oh, well, this is 256-bit mm -hmm. encryption? What does that mean? Well, really? what, it's, what it's basically telling you is how hard it is to break it. So you can convert that information to information about how many years it would take to break it, oh. um, you know, given, the, given what we know now, at least. So what so. is the, quote, optimal level now that's legal. Well, so, yeah, so I think probably what you're talking about is more the private key cryptography. Um, and for that, yeah, so there are different security levels that you would, so I don't, I don't know exactly the answer to your question. There are different security levels you'd use for the, for the private key cryptography. The standard thing to use is AES, the Advanced Encryption Standard, and that has certain standard levels of security that you would use. Is and, that what we're talking um, about, the 256? Yeah, yeah, so there are different, there may be, I don't, there may be four different levels. I don't remember the, the number of different levels, depending on how much uh, security you need. And I don't remember whether they say who should be using which level. Right, right. Because I, yeah. I hear different things mm -hmm. about that. But I know that like when we uh, helped to uh, prepare the security breach notification law, we said it would that the level of encryption should be the standard at the time so that the law wouldn't be obsolete if the standard goes up, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. L good. Let's talk about, like, since voting is going to be important very soon. Um, what are some of the issues with electronic voting? And how does public key cryptology, you know, help to solve those problems? Because we're, that's going to be soon, right? We're all hearing about right. the campaigns. Right. In fact, maybe this is a good time to advertise. Um, there's a talk coming up um, on somebody who was on the um, California Secretary of State's committee um, uh, to examine voting machines is giving a talk at at UCI oh. um, on this issue. But so there's a tension between privacy and verifiability with voting. So on the one hand, you want votes to be anonymous. You don't want to know, you know, I shouldn't be able to know how you voted. 
Um, but you also want reliability. So you want, I should be able to tell that my vote was recorded the way I cast it. Um, in the end, the final tally should be reliable and it should be verifiable. We should be able to verify that tally, but without knowing how each of the individuals voted. Um, and I should be able to verify that my vote came out the right way. There are a number of different issues. And there we should be able to verify that there weren't that you didn't get to vote five times. Exactly. So <laughs> you shouldn't have double voting or multiple voting. And this is the sort of thing the public key cryptography can help you with. So there are all these different things that you put together. Um, so for example, so cryptographic you know, methods help to solve this in a number of ways. One is encryption. So encryption can be used so that um, your vote is private. But then there's the question. So you have all these encrypted votes. How do you count up a bunch of votes if they're all encrypted? And so there, there's something called homomorphic encryption, where you can count up the votes without having to decrypt them. So, uh-huh. so, so that's a, a very clever use of public key cryptography that allows you to do that. Another thing that you can do with public key cryptography is you can digitally sign things. And digital signatures, and there's a, a fancy type of digital signatures called blind signatures that, w- that allow you to um, verify that this is a valid vote where the authority can sign your vote without actually having to see how you voted. And they can confirm that you had the right to vote. Um, there are also ways to check that you did a valid vote without actually seeing what your vote was. Um, so there's a and, con- and how many times I voted. Too. And how many times you voted? That's that's one thing that that public cryptography can help with. It can verify my um, identity without really knowing so, who I am. Well, so there's how to authenticate yourself without yeah. So there there are issues. So things like blind signatures can help for that. Something called zero knowledge proof, which is a very fancy form of public key cryptography, allows you to verify that it's a valid vote without knowing how without getting any information about how you actually voted. So that's the zero knowledge. I have no knowledge about what you did, but I can still prove that you did it right. Oh wow! Um, so it's yeah. zero knowledge proof, like prove that it happened without knowing what it was <laughs> exactly, without that, knowing that the details. That is that security with with yeah. privacy. Which yeah. is amazing. Yeah. So, is that happening? Is that really happening um, now? Or you know, what? I think there are other countries that are actually using some of this in practice. Um, I think in this country, we're, you know, we're moving in that direction. But um, uh, Florida should definitely yeah. use it. <laughs> yeah, I think there may be some sort of electronic voting with um, the military overseas allowing people to vote um, overseas. But I'm not quite sure what's happening with that. But um, I think other countries are a bit ahead. I think in India, there's some sort of electronic voting going on that's using some sophisticated public key techniques. But yeah, I don't I don't know any of the details of any of that. But it's more yeah, I see it more from a distance. And ah, but but they're they're not really using it right now that you know of here in, in our this country. country um, I think certainly people are thinking about and there's research going on in that direction. Um, I don't know of places that are actually using it today. But wow, yeah, I think it's something in the, for the near future. Maybe you should start a consulting business. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, this, yeah there, are, there are people much more expert in electronic voting than I am, so I'm more uh, sort of... Um, yeah. Yeah. You just you do the research on it. Well, it works. yeah, not, not really on the voting itself, but on the public key public key aspects, and then other people will, you know, put put together the some of the known public key aspects in, in very clever ways. It's just amazing what they can do. I mean, you never thought, I never thought about mathematics being so important to privacy and security. As, I mean, I understood it was good for security, but you don't think of it as much as good, you know, as far as the privacy issues. So what is, what is Taurus-based cryptography? What is that? Um, yeah, good question. So... So going back to, so I mentioned earlier about Diffie and Hellman, and they have this Diffie-Hellman key agreement. Well, sometime later, there, was, um, there were some other crypto systems that were ways to make that more efficient. Um, so a way to make this key agreement more efficient. One of them was called Luke, which was based on mathematics called Luca functions, and another was called XTR, 
was kind of a funny name, was, was, um, came about through two Dutch cryptographers, Arian Leinster and Eric Verhul. Um, and then a colleague... How do you spell the, the Lu one? Is that that L-U-H? Luke is L-U-C, okay. and X-T-R is X-T-R, which apparently the X is short for E-C-S, and it stands for, so it's E-C-S-T-R, and it stands for Efficient Compact Subgroup Trace Representation. Wow. Um, <laughs> but then, then, then the next one is, is Kaylee, which is, again, this is bringing my cat into this. Um, so Kaylee is actually spelled C-E-I-L-I-D-H, which is the real spelling of a Scottish word. This is really a word. <laughs> Um, so it's you know it's a word a Scottish word that means you know having a part a party where they're singing and dancing and so on. Um, and I named my cat Kaylee, and then uh, this uh, UCI colleague and I, um, Carl Rubin and I, came up with this crypto system that we decided. Well, since you know cryptographers give everything you know an acronym, we would call it the Kaylee Crypto System, which stands for Compact, Efficient, Improves on Luke and Improves on Diffie Hellman. <laughs> Um, yeah. So this was kind of, and the other thing was XTR. So, so this, you know, this was Exter, E-C-S-T-R. So that's Exter, which this was also a pun. These Dutch mathematicians, apparently Exter is the Dutch word for magpie. So their logo for XTR was a picture of a European magpie and says, XTR, it flies. So then our logo for Kaylee, of course, is a picture of my cat. And, uh, you know, if we, if we just want to joke about it, I'd have the picture of the cat with the, you know, the bird in the cage next to it to say, you know, Kaylee is a good crypto system. But, um, okay, so tell yeah, us so what, what is storage-based cryptography? Yeah, yeah. yeah, so without going into the mathematics behind it very much, just to say briefly, um, so the mathematics comes from a field of mathematics called algebraic geometry um, and algebraic tori. So what, so what happened was Carl Rubin and I looked at these other crypto systems, and we started studying the mathematics underlying them. In fact, there was a paper looking beyond XTR that had some conjectures about ways to generalize XTR. And we looked at this and we discovered... Um, one thing we discovered was that the mathematics underlying it was based on these things called algebraic tori. And uh, so these, each algebraic tori, um, well, it's a certain mathematical object. In the pl um, yeah, so I guess torus is the singular and tori is the plural. Um, and it's, um, so we discovered, first of all, that the mathematics underlying these things was algebraic tori. And we use that to, f so we realized that we can use that information that, you know, that we understood this mathematics to construct an efficient crypto system, and that's what we call Cayley. Um, and we also found out that we can use the mathematics to show that these conjectures um, of, of ways to generalize XTR actually wouldn't work, and that the right way to do it was something like Cayley. So the mathematics allowed us to show that the way people had been trying to go wasn't going to get them very far, and that they should stop doing that. And it also led us to a way to come up with a more efficient crypto system, and that's what Kaylee was. Um, so, and so, so, so it was our terminology, torus-based cryptography, but it came from a very well-known area in mathematics about, you know, algebraic tori, about toruses. Tori. So, so are you telling me, and, and I'm, you know, I don't mean to sound stupid, but are you telling me that there's many, many different types of crypto systems with the mathematics? You, you know, you, you're talking about the, um, you know, the, the, you pronounce the the Kaylee or Kaylee? Kaylee. Kaylee. Yeah. Sorry. And then the Taurus. I mean, are you saying um, that these uh, mathematical crypto systems really are very different from each other? Well, so there are a few. There aren't actually all that many. There are a few basic mathematical problems or num you know, mathematical problems that lead to good crypto systems. So one is if you go back um, to the original public key cryptography, there was the RSA crypto system. And the mathematics behind that is based on, so again, these one-way functions, the idea that there's something that's easy to do and hard to undo. Right. Um, so, so like locking a lock or unlocking it. Um, with RSA,
say that's based on the idea that it's that it's easy. If I take two numbers, it's easy to multiply them together. That's the easy part. The part that's hard is to undo that. If I have a very large number, it's very hard to factor it. Suppose it's a product of two large numbers. It's, it can be very hard to factor it into the constituent pieces that, that you started with to multiply them together. So the RSA crypto system is based on that. Um, Diffie-Hellman and Luke and XTR and Kaylee and you know, to some extent, elliptic curve cryptography also is based on um, something called the discrete logarithm problem. Um, and so that's an idea that it's, so there's a different one-way function there, which is involved in, in raising a number to a certain power. Um, so that's the discrete log problem is another problem. Then these, the elliptic curve discrete log problem is closely related to that, but is using these additional um, interesting things from algebraic geometry and number theory called elliptic curves. And then you can generalize the Elliptic curves, you said, was the one that the government now is that's using? That's right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, so, that's, so there's like five from, I think, what you just yeah, said. Yeah, it depends how you count. If you look at the basic underlying mathematical problems, there actually aren't that many. And so it's very right. hard to find a new problem, that, a, new func a new thing that you believe to be a one-way function, a new thing that it's easy to do and hard to undo. So when when the government has chosen to do the elliptic one that you were talking about, that that's what they, they've chosen is their standard, um, is there a problem that you might have the Cayley one that is that's a different standard? Is there any? I, I, I don't know if I'm asking a stupid question or not, but it just seems to me that do they work together or do you not work them together or... Yeah, well, it's more, you, you know, this, so something like Kaylee's is, is sort of fairly new. So what generally happens is things are around for a while and people scrutinize them. As and then, and then they have standards committees and the standards committees get together. And oftentimes, you know, so they'll try to figure out what should be the standards that are built right. into browsers. And often right. what they'll do is they'll actually make it so you have choices. So the browsers can have wow. various, you have the capability to use any of a number of systems. That has the advantage that if somebody, somebody comes along and breaks some system someday, you still have something to fall back on without everybody having to throw out what they currently have. Right. So, um, so sometimes they say, well, we're going to make you know, all of these standards. Some of them are going to use you know, as the default, but we'll have these others around. So standards committees get together. They'll have cryptographers and maybe others on it um, to decide what the standard, you know, to negotiate and discuss them and you know, scrutinize the different systems and decide what, what the standard should be. And then for something like the U.S. government, they'll pick what standard they want to use. So they, the, the government, for all of their uh, for secrets their public that they go, yeah, their public cryptography, yeah, yeah, they use they, the elliptic. They're recommending elliptic cryptography. I guess they're saying, yeah, that, that, that that's what the government will use, and, and that's a good sign for other people that maybe that's a good thing to use. Right. And then yeah. how do, uh, like, if, if, I, if um, my computer and uh, Amazon, if you go back to that example... So whatever my computer has from Microsoft, whoever they set up, it has to match what Amazon uses, right? I mean, don't I have to use the same? Yeah, this same? is why it's important to have standards. So I don't actually, you know, if we get into the issues of, you know, which, which what one? people yeah. actually use, yeah, that yeah. I probably can't answer. But that's why it's important to have the standards committees. So there'll be, you know, IEEE standards. There are certain um, organizations that will put together standards committees, um, and there'll be certain, you know, certain standards that people will tend to follow. And so, you know, you want generally, you know, people like to follow those standards because then they'll know it'll be compatible from, from right, one machine right, to another. Right, right, right. I mean, I'm thinking about even how, I mean, this may sound stupid, but it just drives me crazy when I have certain, um, you know, plugs that don't fit. Right for my right. camera, and, and and so it makes sense to have standards that you Absolutely. can use that it that it works. Otherwise, it's very frustrating for people. They can't communicate. They can't use products or whatever. 
So is is that political? Do you know? Is it is mm. it kind of political? Who the answer is probably whole? yes, but I haven't. Uh, you, you know, I know a little bit. That? I know some people in standards committees, and I'm sort of guessing that it's somewhat political. It sort of depends. Yeah, I mean, everybody, especially when you have in the standards committees people who work for different companies, and they Why all have competing yeah. interests. Right. So yeah, you want you hope that the committees will be put together of people who are representative of the community, right. with enough different you know constituencies represented that. They're going to do the right thing. You hope so, yeah. Now, would you want your, uh, you know, your Kaylee uh, system to to make it? I mean, is is that something when you've done that? Am I I on the right track that, like, for example, you're in competition with the elliptical or not? Um, Good question. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so in terms of, you know, so basically as a mathematician, as a researcher, I put it out there and then other people decide whether or not to use it. And so I wouldn't be, I probably wouldn't be someone who would be, yeah, but you know, you'd really be involved in Maybe. that. Wouldn't you be thrilled? I would be thrilled. <laughs> yeah, I would be thrilled. I mean, I'm this just trying true. to understand it from the, from the layperson's point of yeah. view. But if you, if exactly. you work on this and you guys have presented mm-hmm. it and you think it's, I would think the fact that you've done that, you must mm-hmm. think that it's even better than the elliptical cryptography. Right? Well, yeah. yeah, so um, so one thing, so we didn't patent it, and one reason we didn't patent it was oh. we thought that people might be more likely to use it if we didn't patent it. So there was an issue. RSA oh. had a patent, and people, you know, people really started using it much more after the patent ran out on that, and people oh. were waiting for many years because, you know, somebody is, has the patent and wants to make money off of it, and we thought it would be more likely for people to use it if we didn't patent it, although it may be the case also that people are afraid to use it if you didn't patent it because they worry that maybe, you know, it wasn't patented. How do we know, you know, that, that it doesn't fall under somebody else's patent that we then have to pay? So I think there are issues like that, but I haven't, you know, as a, an academic, you know, not working for a company for this, um, you know, I haven't worried about that. But well, you know, these are that's good, good the good questions. thing that you can stay out of some of that politics. But I would think that there'd be politics even at the university. I mean, you know, I mean, you would think that if if your particular uh, what Kaylee uh, cryptography was chosen, I mean, that would be great for UCI, right? Mm, yeah, actually, this was done before I came to UCI. Oh. <laughs> good question. But you know what I mean. But, yeah. Now that you're but, yeah, here, yeah, this is true. Now I that mean, I'm uh, here, it yeah. would look good. I mean, I would yeah, think this is so, true. This know? is true. Yeah, there are always issues. Yeah, everybody has has. Yeah, uh, the politics is crappy. Yeah. Well, know, but but I mean, I, I think it's exciting though that mm. you have something that you're working on here. Mm-hmm. With you know, with this kind of research, so right. now, where, where are you with this right now? Yeah, so something like Kaylee, um, yeah. I mean, you really need other people to try to implement it and come up with ways to implement it efficiently. So we've done the mathematics behind it, but then we're sort of hoping that other people will look at it and um, you know try to find more efficient ways to implement it and. Uh, so do you um, write papers so, on so that? One thing, yeah. one thing is to try to come up with more efficient versions, generalizations of it. So as I said, there are other people had conjectured ways to generalize it. We've said, well, that way doesn't work, but there are other ways that we think might work. And so, yeah, so I'm looking in that direction of, of, um, of those, you know, How can we make that it? work? But yeah. there's mathematics there that has to be solved that yeah. hasn't been solved, and it might be impossible to solve. So we'll never know. I mean, we, we, we may know. I hope we know. I hope we uh, succeed. But, you know, from a mathematical point of view, it'll be interesting if we can prove it's impossible to generalize it in that direction. But, of course, from a cryptography point of view, that wouldn't be very helpful. But I think so. that right now that is such a huge issue with security that that. This is you're you're in the leading edge here. 
Yeah, no, I don't know what, you know, how practical it is. Um, it's a good question, though. So, but the time will tell because you want something to be out there for a while. You want people to attack it. And people are doing that. So there are papers being written, you know, on, on Taurus-based cryptography and on Kaylee and um, and people are trying to understand it better. So, so it, it takes yes, a few years. I mean, do it those, takes years. Do those articles, do they send you the articles or do they talk to you? I mean, um, they're public. Doing... They're put on public. There's a website. There's a, a server, um, eprint.iacr.org, uh, where you can go and look at all yeah. of these things. So basically when people are ready to make it public, they'll post the preprint and they'll submit it um, to be published. So. Now, since we are here in, in Orange County, California, and there's a lot of companies around, and I know a lot of companies become very involved in UCI. Are any of the companies doing any partnering with you guys to try this stuff out? Or That's a good question. So I've only been here a few years, and so that's something um, yeah, that I think the university is starting to explore. Oh, they, um, I know they're doing it for other things. That's why I wondered if, if they were actually trying it out like you know guinea pigs to see mm. if it's working for them. Yeah, not, yeah, we haven't gotten down to specifics like that, but I, I guess I know there are companies in the area that are interested in, um, you know, supporting mathematics research with the idea that, it, well, I think also mainly the idea that um, well-educated mathematicians, you know, people with bachelor's degrees and master's degrees and PhDs in mathematics could be very helpful for them um, in their companies to make sure that they're doing reliable security and cryptography and so on. So you want people who have got the mathematical background to really understand these things. Yeah, uh -huh. I mean, it's it to me, it's fascinating. Even though I don't understand it, it still is fascinating because then I see how it works in the real world, or it doesn't work in the real world, or, you know, it's uh, for for the layperson. I think it's uh, incredible that we can do this kind of stuff, and it is. What is pairing-based cryptography? Uh -huh. Now, make that understandable for me, because I am I'm listening real hard, and I'm. I'm starting to get a little bit of this. <laughs> okay, yeah, so I don't know if I can make it understandable, but, but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it anyway. Um, so, so, it's, it, so, so I told you that I was thrilled when elliptic curve cryptography came about in the mid-1980s because I thought, ah, great, this is something that's you know, been around for a while. Mathematicians were interested in it, and nobody ever thought it would be useful. Well, it turns out that elliptic curves have, so, so people you know, learned the elliptic curves were useful. Um, but mathematicians had known about this thing called pairings on elliptic curves. You take two points on elliptic curve, you pair them together, um, and you get a certain result. And we knew that this was very useful in mathematics, and we didn't, you know, never thought to tell the cryptographers that this was useful. But then somehow, you know, the mathematicians and the cryptographers got together, and the cryptographers said, "Hey, this thing called pairings that could be really useful. There are all these unsolved problems in cryptography that we can solve with these pairings." And so this was actually it started. Um, about eight, seven or eight years ago, um, there, was a there was a cryptographer, Antoine Zhu, who came up with the idea that, so Diffie-Hellman, two parties, you and I, can create a shared secret using public key techniques with one round of, of broadcasting information, one round of communication. Um, it was, so Antoine Zhu found out a way to use these pairings, these special properties of elliptic curves, so that three people can share one shared secret with one round of information. Now, this had been an open problem in cryptography. Nobody knew how to do this before. And in fact, it's an open problem. It's an unsolved problem. Can four people um, create a shared secret with only one round of communication? Mm -hmm. And this is not known. And so this is something um, Dan Bonet and I have a paper on multilinear cryptography, which is all the wonderful things you could do if you had, if you generalize pairings where you have two inputs to multilinear when you have multiple inputs. 
Um, and you need new mathematics to do this. So this is this is also an interesting area of research for the future is can you do multilinear cryptography? So there are other things actually. So another, let me go back mm -hmm. when you talk about one round and what did you mean by that? means that each person broadcasts one piece of information. Okay. So for example, in Diffie-Hellman, so it was the sort of thing where um, I announce, I create some public information. I use my private key to create some public information that I broadcast. Okay. You use your private key to create some public information that you broadcast. So that's one round. We've each broadcast once. And then I use your public broadcast and my private key to construct the, the secret, to figure out what the shared secret is. And you get that same shared secret by using your private key and the information I broadcast. But we've each done only one broadcast. Right. And um, with this pairing-based cryptography, three parties, so it's tripartite Diffie-Hellman, three parties can do it where each one broadcasts, makes one broadcast, ah. and then uses their private key, and the three parties can all figure out the same shared secret that they can then use. And it's not known how to do that with four parties. You can do it with two broad, with, with more broadcasts, you know, two broadcasts, but it's not known how to do it with one broadcast. And so... Um, so that's a very useful thing. Another thing is identity-based encryption yeah, is something you can do. that's a very big important thing now because the whole idea of proving who someone is, is that, is that what well, you're talking Well, so about? what this actually has to do with is, so we've said that in private key cryptography, the problem was how do you exchange the shared secret? In public key, the, the problem is how do I know what your public key is? If I want to encrypt to you, I need to know your public key. Well, that means I have to really know it's your public key. And it's not somebody else's public key. Right. If somebody else's public key, I, I encrypt. Then they, then that then other they person can decrypt it with exactly. their private key. Yeah. yeah. So identity-based cryptography will solve that problem. Where if I know something that's unique to you, like um, your email address or your cell phone number, if I know that and believe that that's really correct, I can use that. So that's what what it means by identity-based. That's we'll call that your identity. So okay, well something that's, that's really that's, unique to you. Yeah, but that's it's not, not the same. As, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So something like your name certainly wouldn't be unique. So you want something that's unique. So yeah. So maybe it may or may not be private, unique. More 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 secure. Mm. You know, we wouldn't want to use a social security number because that is too easy. You have mm. to use something right. like something I know. Well, no. So so the thing about identity based is that it's fine for it to be something public. It shouldn't be something private. It should be something that's so public that I am absolutely certain it's connected to you, and that will be your public key. And I can encrypt to you using that as the key. So when I encrypt, all I need to know is this something that's unique to you and is public and that I know is, is you. But you don't know like that because yeah, but you don't know that because you don't know if somebody has, has hijacked my cell phone number or you don't know if somebody has, you know, basically stolen my identity. What I need to know is that you're the only one who has the private key associated with that identity. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So as long as they don't steal the private key associated with that identity, it doesn't matter if they know your cell phone number or if they steal your cell phone. That doesn't matter. It's just that you have to be the only one who has the private key that's associated with that public key. Okay, so somebody, if somebody steals that public key or says that public key... Public is public and doesn't, everyone knows it, doesn't matter. Okay, That's doesn't the nice really thing matter. about public key oh, okay, cryptography okay. is it doesn't matter. The public key is public. Everyone okay. knows it, and it's still okay. That's the amazing okay. thing about public key cryptography. But when you send me something confidential to, on that public key, mm -hmm. then, um, and somebody else is using that name, 
They don't have my private key. They won't have your private key because you went and authenticated yourself. So this is actually yeah. you're, you've, what you have hit on is the problem with identity-based <laughs> encryption, which is that you have gone and authenticated yourself to a trusted third party right. who is thoroughly convinced that that is you. And it and may if, not be me. And, yeah, <laughs> if it's not, then you have exactly hit on the problem with identity-based. Yes. So everybody, you know, a lot of people say, oh, identity-based is wonderful. But you found yeah. the problem with identity. You've just switched the problem somewhere else. Yeah. This is and, absolutely and, and, true. And, and that's the part that's my expertise is mm -hmm. what if the person who originally sets up that private key has stolen my identity? Yeah, so in fact, they in, in identity-based encryption, it's they actually even know your private key, and they are sending you your private key, and they can go and decrypt your messages. Yes. So there's the good and the bad of identity-based yeah, encryption. So you have exactly the nailed the problem with identity-based. Well, but from a mathematical point of view, it's very interesting. But you know um, what, Alice? You have to work on that, that part now, because that's probably a Well, you know, I actually have worked on that part. It's um, hierarchical identity-based encryption. Craig Gentry and I have a paper in which we've done this, which is, so you don't want to trust this trusted third party that's somewhere far away. Right. But maybe you trust, so for example, maybe I trust the mathematics department. So my email address, you know, it's my name at math.uci.edu. I'll go to the math department and authenticate myself. This, so this is the hierarchy. I just have to go to the math department. They know me. Right. They trust me. They will go to the university who knows them. Right. Um, the university will then, you know, or they'll go to the School of Physical Sciences. School of Physical Sciences will go to the university. The university will go to the higher authority. So you can, yeah. So in fact, so I have worked be, on that issue yeah, of getting around. Because yeah. I also didn't like that idea of, of this trusted third party being someone, that, well, I don't trust them. Why should I trust them? Exactly. So you want to distribute the trust. You want to distribute the work. And so that was um, so we came up with a mathematical solution again using elliptic curves and using pairing-based cryptography um, that tried to address exactly the issue that you were concerned about. Yeah, well, that's interesting because that would really be a, a huge thing to overcome right now. I just want to introduce you. We're, we only have a couple minutes left, and I ha I've been so excited listening that I have not introduced you again. I just want to say that we have been talking, and we are. Still talking with Alice Silverberg, who is a professor of computer sciences right here at the University of California, Irvine. You already heard she's brilliant, and this is exciting stuff, and she's doing wonderful research. Let me ask you, because Lloyd says we only have a couple minutes left, what is the future of encryption? Well, good question. Um, so, so in terms of what I'm working on, so I'll give you a sort of a biased answer to that question first, okay. and then I'll give you That's the less, fair. and then I'll give you the less <laughs> slightly less biased answer. So, for me, my future in terms of studying cryptography is I'm looking at these issues of multilinear cryptography. How do you generalize pairing-based cryptography? Also, I'm generalizing elliptic curve cryptography to. Um, it's already known people look at hyper elliptic curve cryptography, but more generally something called abelian variety cryptography <laughs> is something that, you know, I've been working on abelian varieties for a long time. So I'm certainly looking in that direction. Torus-based cryptography, I think, has a, has a good future. Um, but then there's going beyond that. Um, and so the problem with all the things that we've talked about so far is that if a quantum computer existed, all of these systems would be broken. Um, and people are worried that quantum computers will be built before too long. So what's the future of cryptography? And, and you mean by quantum computer, when, what does that mean? That uh, it's open to everybody? Is that what you, you know, mean? No, there's, a, there's a something that, that, we, that people don't know how to build yet, and I think the physicists are working on the problems with that. 
um, and it's based on quantum mechanics. The way a classical computer works, you're sending bits, which are zeros and ones. And for a quantum computer, it's based on quantum mechanics. You're sending basically a probability distribution where there's some probability that something's a zero, some probability that's a one. This is done using photons and so on. Um, And I'm not, you know, that's about all I can say about what they are. What I can tell you is that they don't exist yet, but that if you had one, um, so Peter Schur in the 1990s showed that if a quantum computer existed, it would break all the current systems. So it's post-quantum cryptography that's the future of encryption. And there are already some systems around lattice-based cryptography, multivariate cryptography. Um, These are what people are working on to go past that to when quantum computers exist and break everything we know now. Well, I'm going to have to take your class because Lloyd says it's time to go, and we didn't even get through everything, but it was uh, fascinating. We have been listening to Alice Silverberg, who is Professor of Computer Sciences right here at the University of California, Irvine, sitting right here with us. And mathematics. And mathematics, and she's sitting here right with her little earphones on, and she was doing a fabulous job. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Please join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. on Wednesdays. And also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See our previous guests, listen to their podcasts, download those podcasts, and see our upcoming guests. Thank you very much, and thank you, Alice. Good night. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Good. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.